It's been a wild week in London. At the time of making this recording, the city has been very intense these last few days. National media has covered protest marches against situations in the Middle East. Four underground lines were closed to allow urgent engineering works. We had the National Sacred Moment of Silence held on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, followed by the day after by the Remembrance Sunday services focused upon London. And during this weekend, one where we've been told the city had more homeless sleeping rough upon its streets since modern records began, the City of London got to witness once again the yearly wild and fun ritual of the Lord Mayor's Parade. We got to watch the livery companies process through the narrow streets of the city. Music was played and foreign merchants and representatives of other cities and big dignitaries all waved at the cheering crowds. And I couldn't help but feel this is London to a T. This was the London I adore. As I watched the Lord Mayor's procession march past number one poultry. I felt, as I often do, the sense of both the new and the old walking together. How everything is so modern, from the giant vehicles trying to make that tight right turn off Princess Street onto poultry and passing the mansion house, and some made it easily and some needed to stop and take a while. And as I watched the modern residents of London in that procession contend with an ancient dilemma that the city's forebears had always had to cope with, you know, to walk in the horse poo or not, I was reminded why I make this podcast. Because London is unique. There are older cities, of course there are. And there are much larger cities, obviously. But this city's ability to be both home of ancient ritual and modern politics where thousands can take to the streets to object to events half a world away while thousands more can carry on in blind indifference and watch a parade where rituals that seem as old as the city itself such as the Lord Mayor's Parade can happen and as we know on this podcast these ancient rituals don't actually do justice to the city's history. After all, in the story of London so far, we have not even reached the point where Lord Mayors have been created, let alone have a parade. And in fact, where we are, there's only one livery company around, not 111 or so. And yet still, back then, upon the ancient streets of Poultry, the residents of 12th century London could follow it to Cornhill and then to Oldgate. They would have had no idea that here now, 800 years later, we would still walk the same streets. The past is always here, wonderfully imposing itself upon us with every step we take. And as I gazed upon that corner of Princess Street and Poultry, with Threadneedle Street and King William Street also there above the tube station of Bank, and looking at the massive Bank of England and the Royal Exchange in front of me, I couldn't help but wonder, when did London become the place of money? Not money as in rich people, but when did it become the financial engine of the state? Interesting I should ask that, because I believe it began when we left the story of London, in the reign of Henry II. And it's here 
that London became the money pit of England itself. Hi, my name is Saul, and this is The Story of London, a podcast dedicated to telling the tale of this amazing city from the point of view of the residents at the time. We've reached the 1160s, and it's time to examine a pivotal change in the city's relationship with money and men of money and of finance itself. Welcome then to chapter 68, and I did get the number right this time, The Money Pit. Okay, so we're going to be talking about money this episode. It's important. I hope this time to be somewhat less dry than I've been forced to be in the past, although I'll probably fail, just because we begin to get a bit more evidence about this subject in this era onwards. To summarise the economic story of London so far, well, back in Chapter 3, I described ancient Londonwick, the old Saxon market, where... Transactions were done in a nation which didn't have any currency at all, and no coins were made to trade and to barter with. The only working currency was food, it seems. In chapters 4 and 5, I described the impact of Mercia upon this settlement, and the creation of the first mint here, producing tiny silver skietas and then much larger pennies, which was facilitated by bullion slowly beginning to trickle into the kingdom of Mercia during the 7th and 8th centuries. And this led eventually to the explosion in coin-making by the Mercian overlord and king, Offa the Great, who I suggested in chapter 6 probably influenced Europe with the sophistication of his coin-making operation. And always London was at the heart of this. Its location as a trading hub and port made it a natural location for bullion importation. And we witnessed the establishment of moneyers, the coin-makers, By the 9th century, even after the travails of the Viking incursions and the endless wars, and the fall of the old Saxon and English polities, and even after Alfred the Great moved Londonwick to where it now stands, London's role as a mint, as a place where wealth was physically created, was well established. But the early part of the last century, London's crucial role in coin production for the nation was clearly seen, as I covered in some detail in chapter 30. And as the Anglo-Saxon state had fallen, first to the Danes, and then after a brief return under Edward the Confessor, finally to the Normans, this role had remained. And yet the loss of bullion imports, the massive impact financially of those dark years, caused a catastrophic economic contraction in the city, which I covered in chapter 52, And yet, ironically enough, London was still the richest settlement in the country and was more than ready to capitalise upon this and to allow itself slowly climb to the majestic economic zenith it would eventually reach. And it all starts now, in the reign of King Henry II. Back in the early 1150s, when the king was simply Henry of Anjou, and he was planning his symbolically large invasion of England, he needed cash to pay for it. As he discovered when he was younger, lack of funds can and would cause him to have to dismiss troops. He intended to never make that mistake again, and as such the king turned to two financiers to help him. 
The first was a resident of Rouen called William Trentigurans, whose job and name in Rouen sound remarkably similar to the job and name of the Sheriff of London at the time, Osborne Houdiniers. While he died in 1159, William Trentigurans' loans helped Henry of Argent sail to England and claim his throne, and his widow collected the new king's loan repayments and the returns on her late husband's investments in Southampton. But the main financier of the king was a man called William Cade of Sonomire, and he's important. I mentioned him briefly in chapter 63, and what makes him so fascinating is that we can follow William Cade from Flanders to London, because he became a dominant figure in London finance until 1164 or so. We see his name often appearing in the pipe rolls of the king, where his principal role seemed to be aiding sheriffs make their yearly farm payments, sometimes with large sums of money, which appeared to be not readily available to the locals, and no doubt doing so increased his own wealth quietly in repayments. The historian H.G. Richardson described what Cade helped institute was simply a system where, quote, by the middle of the century, credit and finance had developed upon a wide and international scale, unquote. And here we see the most significant word when talking about international finance being used in regard to London for the first time, credit. Nothing drives economic progress as much as credit. And I could wax lyrical about how important credit has been to creating the modern capitalist system that currently runs the world. But there are many, many hundreds of years to go before we get to the modern capitalist system that runs this world, so I will spare you that pain, dear listener, at least for now. We need, in fact, only take on board a few things from the life of William Cade. One, as we said, he was a moneylender of some wealth and was envied and emulated by many. Proof he was emulated? Well, as I covered back in chapter 63, the Eastern End London-based moneylender Gervais of Cornhill actually was a witness on Cade's will. But secondly, because of Cade's appearance on the pipe rolls, it means we need to explore exactly the relationship between London's sheriffs, the Chivrelty, and the emergent financial market happening under their feet. And in doing so, we get a fascinating insight into how London and finance worked back then. There seems to have been three main players in the London money market by the middle of the 12th century. Each one played a differing role, and not all involved perhaps wanted a role, but each was crucial to its development. The first was the newly emergent order of the Knights Templar, based over in Holborn, but as I described last chapter, now in the process of moving to their new base of Temple Bar and quickly throwing their weight around and placing water gates upon the river fleet. Then there were the Christian usurers or moneylenders, who walked in a legal grey area, forbidden from technically charging interest on loans, but who clearly did, and who obviously followed the model set by the late William Cade. And then there was the third group, the group forced into this role, but who adapted and coped simply in order to survive, the richer members of London's Jewish community. These three groups mobilised credit in their own unique ways, and were able to help London overcome the inflexibility of medieval economics. All three basically were able to provide rich men with ready cash to spend, and they were also able to provide poor men 
with the funds they needed to survive or cope with calamity. And in the process, they were able to keep themselves going and, here and there, enrich themselves. This, of course, made them unpopular. And it's worth remembering that two out of these three groups suffered for taking this role. The Jewish population suffered the worst, experiencing resentment, leading to violence and actual bloody pogroms which would be enacted upon London streets as members of that community who had nothing to do with finance became easy targets for ignorant neighbours. The Knights Templar would face international growing resentment for their role in banking and by 1312 would be crushed in France and across Christendom and their story will be told in time. And the group who got off the least worst, well, that was the Christian moneylenders. But their punishment was social stigma. While there were probably cruel moneylenders in the 12th and 13th century, Christian usurers were almost universally painted in a negative light, probably explaining Thomas Beckett's feelings towards Gervais of Cornhill. Mostly, the negativity was fundamentally based on a medieval non-understanding of how interest actually worked, all of which meant that even the smallest rate of return on any lending was automatically placed in the category of the sin usury. Yet for all the stigma towards these three groups, their beneficial impact upon London and London's economy going forward from here on in cannot be hidden or dismissed. If you take the most basic benchmark of economic progress as simply saying men could buy more and the choice of what they could afford to buy had increased, then we can clearly see this in the mid-12th century of London. This was genuine and was happening. And by the 1160s, this was recognised even by the people who resented it was happening. And it was being facilitated by these groups who had now allowed the earliest forms of credit, as we recognise it, be introduced to London's financial market. London's emergent Jewish community in this era needs to be examined, as they were a crucial and vibrant part of London in the 1160s. What must be understood is that this community was entirely the creation of the original dynasty of William the Conqueror. They'd been invited to London by William I, and then they'd been favoured by William II, who always needed their cash and would then exploit them, usually by occasionally parading some local Jewish resident he got on very well with, and would have an animated and happy chat with one in front of a local bishop just to scandalise how well the king got on with non-Christians. But ultimately, it was Henry I who seemed to understand how the Jewish community here in the city of London could help him significantly with his finances. And here is where we need to really examine why Jewish communities of this era were so closely linked to money lending. And to understand that, I have to say, as a historian... There is a lot, no, seriously, a lot of utter crap that has been perpetuated by some genuinely ugly, evil people over the centuries about this very subject. History is deeply stained with the indelible mark of men and women 
who simply just hate Jews. And while doing so in the past was seen as a badge of honour for some, we fortunately exist in a world where, thankfully, such people are rightfully reviled. And me saying that, by the way, is not a political act or a political opinion. Finding anti-Semitism repulsive is never a political act. It's the behaviour of normal people upon encountering something that causes us disgust. So in that light, allow me then to just take a moment to explore what was going on with the medieval Jewish communities in Europe. And once again, as I always say, this is a simplified summary. Nothing more, nothing less. Understand that from about the 5th or 6th century, if not earlier, in Europe, wealth had become entirely based upon owning land. Owning land allowed you to control the food that was grown on that land. In the era in England before there were coins, and in the era in Western Europe where Asiatic tribes such as the Franks, the Vandals, the Goths and others invaded Western Europe, driven west by the advances of other much larger Asiatic tribes such as the Huns, food became the bedrock of all early medieval economies. Thus wealth and landowning went hand in hand. And in time, political systems were created to formalise the ownership of land. And thus you end up with titles like barons and counts and dukes and eventually kings. As over long centuries of time, this ad hoc system of, ooh, that's a nice few thousand acres of great agricultural land you got there, would be a shame if me and a bunch of lads were to turn up and take it, became protected behind ritual, social rank, feudal obligation and legal systems, all designed to enforce the right of agricultural landowners. Wealth was utterly agricultural based and would remain so during this era. And as such, your average member of the diaspora Jewish community in Europe was never going to be able to access this. One, not only did the Jews of Europe never have any armed force to enforce such a thing, across Europe, torrents of long-standing anti-Semitism, which we can prove and see in pogroms taking place as far back as the Visigothic kings in what's today's Spain, decades before the Muslims ever invaded the region. And all of this meant that simply, if there were any Jewish landowners who held great grand counties or duchies at any time in Christendom, if they were lucky, their neighbours would have killed them and taken such land. Now, Christendom was never going to accept Jewish agriculturalists, and as such, in Western Europe, Jewish communities tended to be town dwellers and urban-based. And as such, due to these circumstances, Jewish communities became specialists in the needs of towns, in emerging trade and town-based industries, specialists in crafts only found in stable communities. So they became masters of these crafts for as long as they could until inevitably everywhere, you know, local Christian neighbours would get racked off and would push them out. And this ended up reducing them 
and forcing them to become increasingly dependent upon trade. Due to the scattered nature of the Jewish diaspora across Europe, Jewish traders became experts in long-distance trade, as they sought to simply take goods being created by Jews in one town, which they now could no longer sell to their Christian neighbours, to maybe Jews in another town who they could sell it to. And in the face of a hostile, competing bunch of religions, Jewish communities adapted and coped, and Jewish merchants' willingness and ability to make quite long journeys to buy and sell goods had seen them become the principal long-distance merchants in both Christendom and the lands of Islam. And the few scattered descriptions of Jewish merchanting in Europe matches identically what we were seeing in um, Arab lands as described by the Muslim scholar of the 9th century, Ibn Qurudahaba. By the 11th century, this preeminence, however, had been eclipsed, especially by the rise of Muslim merchants and then isolated pockets of Christian merchants, such as the Port of Venice. But what we had as we enter the era now is a Dysporan Jewish community who have a great understanding of how long-distance trade worked, and because of that, an understanding of how credit worked. They were not unique in this understanding, but they had a much more sophisticated grasp of how it worked compared to, say, the average village dweller of some extended pigsty in the Rouen Valley or a general labourer from the growing suburb of Portsoken. And it was for this reason that they had become attached to the business of money lending, tapped by rich Christian landowners who grasped how profitable such a relationship could be for them. Jews across Europe often only existed in any safety because some local landlord protected them, and they were expected to pay for this protection. It was an extortion racket, and the tenacity and perseverance of Europe's Jewish community explains not only an incredible strength of character, but also just how quickly they had to learn to make such a system work for them. They understood how credit worked, understood by necessity how to handle money and had a long-distance links and connections that allowed them to exploit this for their own survival. If you want proof of how widespread it was, well, if you can remember back in chapter 57, I described the dialogues between a Jewish visitor to London and Abbot Gilbert of Westminster. The unnamed Jewish foil of the good abbot spoke French but he had been educated in the Holy Roman Empire and was clearly known to many Jewish communities across Northern Europe and perhaps even further. This is a reflection of life this community faced in this time. But this ability to travel, coupled with long-distance personal friendships and the tight loyalties of such communities, made it possible for cash and credit and exchange to be facilitated where normal avenues were not apparent. And for the rich and powerful of Christendom, because the Jewish communities were so readily identifiable, and because they were so vulnerable to legal and illegal vengeance upon them, this fundamentally made the Jewish communities technically more trustworthy than Christian moneylenders. I mean, if you're a rich landowning noble of Europe, your local Jewish community isn't going to stiff you because you could destroy them if they even tried. 
I am not saying what I just said was a comprehensive history of Europe's uh, amazing Jewish community. I'm just using that as a summary so you can understand why we talk about Jewish moneylenders in the early part of the medieval period. England's Jewish community had started in London, as I said, but by the mid to late part of the century had spread to many other towns, with clear safe places for them to visit in the home counties, over towards Exeter and up towards Lincoln. The communities tended to be close with one another, mostly out of a need for survival, but London also tended to be the principal community to begin with. During the reign of Henry I, the leading figure in London Jewry was Rabbi Josi from Rouen, whose sons, Isaac and Abraham, became business figures in their own rights. And Gervais of Cornhill sold Isaac a house on Westsheep, or Cheapside. Isaac and Abraham were also lending money to King Henry II. For most of the 1160s, the sums involved were small. We're talking about the king requesting personal loans as opposed to massive state loans. But as we enter the 1170s, two large syndicates had to be formed to facilitate a massive series of loans to the king and involving Aaron of Lincoln, who became one of the nation's principal financiers at this time. Understand these loans were probably nothing more than protection money for the king, but they reflect a growing need for Jewish money within the king's expenditure for a few years. It appears that when Henry II took the throne, he was quite extravagant, spent a lot, and needed moneylenders like William Cade. Then, during most of the 1160s, King Henry calmed his spending down and appeared to be quite prudent. And then some stuff hit the fan around 1173 and 74, and he needed cash influx. Basically, all the evidence suggests that the Jewish community of London and elsewhere while never part of Henry's financial considerations in the first part of his reign, clearly became what one historian described as, quote, one of the chief sources of ready money, unquote. We know London's Jewish community were also crucial in helping increased access to credit for London's residents, and across England we begin to see how natives began to utilise the services of these communities. They aided countless men to avoid debt and financial room due to debt with small loans to overcome financial shortages. We do see feckless landowners mortgaging property to Jewish communities, but said communities had no real desire to own country property. So they would pass on the land to those who could buy the mortgages off them and actually facilitated rising gentry and small religious houses expanding their holdings. What we do not have records of, but it would be within easy speculation to consider did happen, was the probability of loans to merchants. Small-term transactions that greased the wheels of London's emerging trade market. Think about it this way. A London speculator wanted to buy a cargo from a foreign merchant on the docks of Billingsgate. The price of the cargo is a set amount of silver coins. This is the currency. This cannot be mitigated. The foreign merchant is sailing back to Germany in a few days. Our London speculator does not have the required amount of coins at this exact moment. There are no such thing as banks. And literally, if he can't make this deal, a rival will step in and do it. 
said London businessmen can approach London's Jewish community and ask for a small loan of coins to cover the shortfall. And the community, due to its own links with a wider bunch of communities across England, are able to facilitate this. In time, when the London speculator is able to sell on the wares he purchased, he can facilitate the repayment. And as such, we can see that simply by happenstance and goodwill, London's Jewish community became a crucial part of London's rebirth as a trade port. In an economy where everything is trapped behind the need to have physical bullion, they facilitated credit, with it speculation and ambition. But as I said, the Jewish community of London was only one part of the financial dealings of the city. The other can be seen in the accounts of a distinctly Christian moneylender and an inspiration to many an up-and-coming London oligarch, William Cade. Cade had began life as a Flemish cloth merchant. No doubt he gained his initial power because, as I described in a previous chapter, after the Norman invasion, Flemish merchants came to dominate the English wool trade. And from this, Cade then got into money lending. And in truth, from Saint-Omer, he ran an international cartel of finance with tendrils that spread all across northern Europe. Cade became a one-man bank with a veritable unknown legion of associates and partners in several countries. William Cade's closest confederates were his brother, Ernulf Cade, and his son, William Cade Jr. And all three Cades seem to have been regular visitors to London, where William Cade Sr. had a house. And up until the mid-1160s, he was one of the principal moneylenders and financiers of the city. Cade's speciality was aiding sheriffs, but he extended credit to a wide variety of people, from humble men all the way up to the king. He even extended credit to the church. Cade began a process that was then copied by other Flemish merchants and then later on by Italian merchants of buying the entire wool clip from Cistercian monasteries and priories and paying them in advance in expectation of the wool harvest to come. His clients included numerous abbots, bishops and then earls and barons and he would help sheriffs make up any shortfall in the collection of taxes. At the twice yearly collection of coins being brought to the exchequer, where supposedly cartloads of heavily guarded silver coins were delivered, we get an image of William Cade waiting nearby, quietly ready to step in to help any sheriff or the exchequer itself with any shortfalls. The grand master of credit and finance in an age where such things had only begun. His links to London oligarchs and their families is easily provable. A bond dated to 1157 had three witnesses upon it. Rayner, son of Beringer, Peter Fitzwalter and John Bukenty, all three former or soon-to-be sheriffs of London. Indeed, we're actually fairly sure that Peter Fitzwalter and John Bukenty were probably his leading London business partners. So often are their names linked to his, and along with a few other of London's moneyed class, William, son of Isabel, and our old friend Gervais of Cornhill. 
even after he died. The example of Cage showed these London oligarchs exactly what was possible. And as I said in the previous chapter, we suspect heavily Gervais of Cornhill made himself a smaller scale version of that Flemish giant, able to leverage his own contribution to the emergent credit system to gain countless sheriff posts, and he was sheriff of London three times. And now finally we come to the impact of the third group, the Knights Templar upon London's financial market, a group who Henry II came to increasingly place importance upon during his reign. The Knights Templar became the bankers of London. With their headquarters in Holborn felt to be too small, and looking with envy over at their rivals, the Knights Hospitaller, who had been generously appointed in Clerkenwell, they decided to move to create a region we now call Temple or Temple Bar. If anything was to show the power and importance of the Templars in this era, it was this region. I mean, think about what they'd just done. The Order now lived in some splendour in their own strongly guarded precinct, which was built to surround a fine church, and they and the Hospitallers were to become crucial in the financial market of London. Indeed, while they do not get any of the attention, mostly because they were happy to remain in Clerkenwell, the Hospitallers were probably just as involved in the early banking of London. As to why the Knights Templars became the international bankers of Christendom, well, you can understand that simply by looking at the fares of their London branch. It's allowed us to get a crucial insight to their power in this. So, for example, for reasons that are going to come up later in the story, King Henry II gave the Knights Templar a colossal sum of money at one point to maintain 200 knights back in the Holy Land. This vast amount of silver the Templars took and hoarded at their new compound here next to the River Fleet. They could not keep it forever, though, it was intended to be taken to Jerusalem. But meanwhile, numerous lesser men would seek to contribute to support the Crusades by giving the Templars monies or land. And this was especially useful for those who were sentenced to serve a penance and they didn't really fancy the idea of travelling half the world away to actually go to the Holy Land, so they'd offer land instead. And many of these were small landowners who didn't have the cash but did have property and as such the Templars could do one thing the Jewish community could not do. They became landlords. As such the compound saw a military order who became experts in land management, banking, credit, long distance transport and trade. And because they were a military order they had significant armed forces to back them up. When they transported the money, such as taking those monies to the Holy Land, they would do so via heavily armed convoys, something no merchant could afford but could pay, maybe, to be part of. And this is where their skills as bankers and the security of their compound really became crucial. The king himself saw the Templar headquarters as a brilliant location for the royal treasury itself, and it came to replace Old Winchester as the ideal location for the king to dump his money, diminishing that town's previous role after centuries. Indeed, the treasury at Temple would become the real home for the royal fortunes until the next century, when Westminster would finally gain the position of principal locations for the king's cash. So, this is the money pit of London during this era. 
upon the long foundation of a history of bullion importation and with it the royal mints and the principal offices of moneyers was now added a trifecta of new emergent economic powers. The leading branch of the firm of Cade Brothers and Sons, the richer elements of the Jewish community and the flamboyant and heavily armed Knights Templar. All three grew up independent of one another, but they were able to exploit the fact that the king, his royal court and his royal exchequer began to spend increasing time and focus just round the corner in Westminster, allowing these three groups become the foundation stones of what is by today's standard a primitive financial market, but was for the time a sophisticated and newly formed system of credit and as such investment capital. And around this was a community, London. And within London, a growing, increasingly powerful class of oligarchs who hovered around and exclusively held posts like alderman and sheriff and who married each other's sons and daughters to each other and who emulated and took advantage of this trifecta on their doorstep. And thus was born the money pit, a never-ending series of transactions, of deals and loans that began to cement the foundation of London's position as the financial capital of the nation. And all this newfound wealth and credit began to have a material benefit upon this city during this era. And we see the most significant impact in the actions of a local priest, Peter D. Colchurch. Now, not a lot is known about the life of D. Colchurch, although we do know that he took his name from the fact that he was a chaplain of St. Mary Colchurch, a church which once stood at the junction of poultry and old Jewry. Peter was an organiser, a builder, a priest, and an architect. We don't know why exactly Peter was involved in the project that was to dominate the rest of his life. We don't know who tapped him to facilitate this project, or what qualifications he had earned to gain the role he was to get. But from 1163 onwards, Peter's story was dominated by one crucial structure. London Bridge. London Bridge during this decade was in a woeful state. The Pentecost fire, which I covered in chapter 61, plus the frozen Thames experience of the last few years and general wear and tear, had seemingly damaged the bridge, and repairs were urgently needed. And it fell to this local priest to oversee said repairs. Peter saw the need to maintain and replace the bridge, as it was, and so in 1163, he began to supervising a complete rebuild of it with newly harvested elm wood. This project took six years, with men working in the most difficult conditions, and yet, by 1169, London Bridge was renewed and given a new lease of life. But it does appear that this new wooden bridge was only a temporary stopgap. Peter Dale Colchurch and London had bigger plans for its bridge. Peter planned for there to be a more permanent construction, a stone version of the bridge. And after completing the Elmwood version, there followed during this part of the story a few years 
where Peter wasn't so much overseeing building, but raising funds for this capital project, and organising a group dedicated towards this project, the Fraternity of the Brethren of London Bridge. His actions show that since there was now credit available in London, there was money to be spent on growing public works. Peter de Colchurch retains elements of the late charismatic Rehiri of Smithfield in this respect, a local priest, a London one, becoming a figure for a London project. And in a future chapter, he will raise the funds for this stone rebuild indeed. Of course, London having more money also meant, alas, London began to have more crime. And the rise in criminality can be seen in a document dating from 1170, which mentions a group of prisoners intended to be incarcerated in some kind of prison on the east bank of the River Fleet, surrounded at the time by a moat, and located where today stands Seacole Lane and Ludgate Street. This is probably the first true reference to the existence of the Fleet Prison, the first dedicated jail for the City of London. While the institution itself is not named formally for at least a few decades still to come, its existence back here in 1170, and its probable existence being established 40 years earlier, does suggest that incarceration was now becoming a viable means of punishment. Stone buildings with stone walls meant you didn't have to execute everyone who broke the law. And with the city's growing and teeming population, this is perhaps the first sign that along with wealth and the disparities of wealth also came the first rise in criminality within this money pit. But I will end this chapter with another snapshot from 1170. A new church was built within the city known as St. Mary Axe. Its weird name was based upon a popular but utterly nonsensical religious story making the rounds in England and at the time and had been for a few centuries. The tale of St. Mary the Virgin, St. Ursula and the 11,000 virgins. Yeah, get comfy. This little story is where I'm going to end the chapter on. Basically, the myth of St. Ursula had been reckoned to be loosely based on events that took place in England sometime between the years 300 or 600 of the Common Era. Ursula was said to be a young woman of Romano-British descent, and of course a Christian, and that she was betrothed to a man of high rank and was travelling to be united with her intended. Unfortunately for Ursula and her travelling companions, said to be anywhere between 11 and 11,000 virgin maidens, found themselves in the city of Cologne, where they were cruelly massacred for refusing to copulate with the invading army of Attila the Hun. Some said Ursula was taking holy pilgrimage to Rome and that was why she was in the city, while others maintained that her and a veritable legion of young English virgins had been caught in a storm and shipwrecked far from their intended destination and the survivors had subsequently been taken prisoner and savagely beheaded by Huns with axes, while Ursula, their leader, was said to have been shot by arrows, fired by Attila himself. Yeah. Now, the story had been very popular in earlier ages, with churches dedicated to this young woman and her thousands of companions, but later scholarship did cast some interesting light upon the tale, 
The number of martyrs may not have been extensive as was concluded in the ninth century, and that could be more the result of an error in translation than mass murder. One theory is that there was only one martyr named Undecimilia, who was incorrectly translated as Undicimilia, or 11,000 in Latin. Another theory from the 8th century historian is that amongst the martyrs there was a 11-year-old girl called Ursula, and her age, Undecimilia, was where the error comes from. Still, the saint remained popular, and her feast day of October 21st was widely celebrated. And it is possible, by the way, that the discovery of a few islands in the Caribbean he was exploring on that date is why Christopher Columbus named them the Virgin Islands. But in London, all of this meant that there was a church called St. Mary axe dedicated to this story and within it was an axe supposedly wielded by Attila's men and had been used to chop off the 11,000 virgins heads and yeah it probably was not one of those axes but still that is where the name came from and the church would in time fade away and being forgotten about and all that would remain is a street named Saint Mary Axe upon which now stands a modern symbol of London's money pit, an especially large building, which the locals insist is shaped like a gherkin. And that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Just to let you know, we have three special episodes all coming up, which I'm remarkably excited about. There are two episodes being dedicated to the story of one man, Thomas of London, Thomas Beckett. His story is fantastic because it does two things. One, it shows his relationship to the city uh, and how important the city was to him. And he was London's most famous resident during this era. But two, when you study his life, we also get a wonderful account of what was going on around England at this time. That is, I'm hoping to be one episode, but I think it could actually be two back-to-back episodes being released to describe his story. And as well as that, we've finally reached an episode I've been looking forward to for ages. 1174 is the year that a a book came out. Now, the book was a biography of Thomas Beckett, written by a man called Fitzstevens. What's interesting about the book is in the introduction, William Fitzstevens wrote a guide to London. And I'm going to be dedicating an entire episode to this guide to London because if you ever wanted a snapshot or to be able to visualize what it was like living in London during the reign of Henry II this is it genuinely looking forward to those episodes thank you for listening I really hope you enjoyed this I love talking about finances I tried to make it interesting don't know if I succeed thank you for all the kind words reviews and support we've been getting Uh, from listeners it's really appreciated and also for the generous contributions people have made to the buy me a coffee page where you can make a a one-off contribution or you can become a member which will help cover all the fees that go with hosting and running a podcast whether you can or you cannot contribute i just hope you enjoyed this episode i'll be back next week with chapters 69 and 70 and maybe 71 i think i'll be doing two Uh, and then one as opposed to three in one week 
And yeah, enough of me talking. Thank you. Bye.